If I were the devil, legendary ABC radio commentator Paul Harvey began his broadcast 58 years ago. I mean, if I were the prince of darkness, I would of course want to engulf the whole world in darkness. I would have one-third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I would not be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree. So I should set about, however necessary, to take over the United States. I would begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve, do as you please. Do as you please. To the young, I would whisper, the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what is bad is good and what is good is square. In the ears of the young marrieds, I would whisper that work is debasing, that cocktail parties are good. I would caution them not to be extreme in religion, in patriotism, in moral conduct. And the old I would teach to pray after me, our Father which art in Washington. If I were the devil, I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting, so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. And then, if I were the devil, I'd get organized. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction, and I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects but neglect to discipline emotions. Let those run wild. I would designate an atheist to front for me before the highest courts in the land, and I would get preachers to say, she's right. With flattery and promises of power, I could get the courts to rule what I construe as against God and in favor of pornography, and thus, oh, I'm sorry, and thus, I would evict God from the courthouse, and then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And then, in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion. And I would defy science, because that way, men would become smart enough to create superweapons but not wise enough to control them. If I were Satan, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. In other words, if I were Satan, I'd just keep on doing what he's doing. This morning, we're going to revisit the time when Jesus predicted Satan's downfall. We're in the book of Luke. We're returning there. And we are in chapter 10, reading verses 17 through 20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
it is a privilege for us to serve Jesus. But I need to let you know that serving Jesus requires that we balance joy with humility. There is a place for joy in serving Christ, but so also is there a place for humility. Jesus said the 72, I'm sorry, Luke says, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I'm told that two geese were about to make their annual southern migration when a frog begged them to take him with them. And so the geese obliged, but only if the frog could devise a way to take him. So the frog went and produced a long enough stalk and asked each geese to hold the end in its mouth. And he himself would um, grab the straw in his mouth and they would fly that way. And so they were making good progress that way, believe it or not. And some men who were down below marveled at what they were seeing and, and thought, man, this is incredulous. This is amazing. I wonder, who, I wonder who thought of this ingenious idea. And so the boastful frog, who was unable to resist that temptation, opened his mouth and blurted out, it was I. It was I. You know what happened, right? He fell to the ground and was dashed to pieces. The, the moral of the story is this. When you have a good thing going, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> and I would add to that, unless you're giving glory to God, unless you're giving the glory to God, then is when you open your mouth. Now, the last time that we were in the book of Luke, we looked at how Jesus sent out 72 of his disciples and he sent them out two by two to preach the gospel and to heal the sick. Now here in the text that we just read, we're going to see these disciples returning from the mission and they are literally bouncing off the wall with joy over the incredible results that they had seen. They had witnessed God do some amazing things through their ministry. And so here's what they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. That was their boast. Now, it was not that there was anything wrong with what they were saying. Jesus had indeed given them authority over demons, serpents, and the devil himself. They had had a successful ministry. And they had witnessed incredible results. If you turn, well, you don't need to turn there now, but if you, if you turned to the book of Mark, you'd find that Mark tells us that they were able to cast out demons, many of them. They healed many sick people, not to mention the many who were coming to Jesus and being converted and delivered from their sins. No wonder that these disciples were so filled with joy. And who wouldn't? Who wouldn't be filled with joy? If you saw that God, through our preaching, was saving people by the dozens and the hundreds, if God brought to our church the 1% of the 40,000 in Greenfield who do not yet know Christ, as we've been praying for, if God did that and brought them to church so that there was no longer any space in our church, wouldn't that excite you? 
wouldn't you take to Facebook and social media and let everybody that you met knew, know of how incredibly God was working in your church? So that's what's happening here. God was doing incredible things through these people's ministry. Now, I said earlier that there was nothing wrong with what they said. But in fact, there was. There was. They had made themselves the object of their rejoicing. Let me say that again. They had made themselves the object of their rejoicing. They put themselves before the name of Jesus. Now, look at the sentence. You'd see that make very clearly. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. So, so they themselves, they put themselves before Jesus himself. The very one who had given them the authority to do what they did. Now, it wasn't that they didn't include the name of Jesus in their boast, but they put themselves first. And they put the name of Jesus second as if it was through their own power that these things had happened to them in the field. Let me say to us this morning that miracles are supposed to happen in our churches. You don't believe me, so I'll say it again. Miracles are supposed to happen in our church. But miracles happen in the church only through the power of Jesus. Revivals are supposed to happen in the church. But revivals occur in the church only through the power of Jesus. And when they do, it is the name of Jesus. It is Jesus himself that should get the focus. Now, it is, it is true that we might have been the instruments and the vessels that God used to make these things happen. But we must always remind ourselves that it was the power of Jesus that was displayed through us, and God himself should get the glory. And so we have every right to be joyful, as these disciples were, when we see God doing awesome things, but we need to temper our joy with exalting the name of Jesus and not ourselves. The second thing I want to say to us this morning is this, that we have the authority to curb demonic activity. We have it. We have it. Now, maybe the disciples, when they came back with their boast, maybe they expected Jesus to give them an attaboy, you know, to pat them on the back and say, way to go, kudos to you. But I find that Jesus wasn't really too impressed at all. Instead, this is what he said to them. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, what does that have to do with what they're saying? Nothing. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He goes on to say, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, I want us to take the, last, the latter part of that verse first. Let's take the latter part of that verse first. Jesus says, Behold, I have given you, meaning his disciples, 
authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, it is I, I am the one who has given you power to do what you did. It was through the power that I gave you that you were able to accomplish these things that you did. You were able to trample over serpents and scorpions and over the devil. And you were able to heal the sick. I gave you that authority. Now I need to remind those of us who claim that we are disciples of Jesus. I want to remind us that Jesus has given us power and we must choose to operate in it. Can I say that again? Jesus has given us power, authority, and the choice is up to us to operate in it. And so whenever we come up against serpents and scorpions, and these represent demonic activity, when we come up against the devil himself, we need to trample upon them by going on the offensive. Now, too often what we do is that we go on the defensive. We need to go on the offensive with the power that is in the name of Jesus, the words of Jesus, and the blood of Jesus. Too often what we do, as I said earlier, is that we go on the defensive. We give in to fear. We run away with our tail between our legs. We must learn as disciples of Jesus to operate in the power of Jesus, to beat back the satanic forces that come against our church, that come against our marriages, that come against our children, that come against our grandchildren. That authority allows us to say, I believe, two things to the devil. Because, you know, sometimes we need to talk to the devil. You realize that? Sometimes we need to talk to him. There are two things that we can say to him. The first of which is this, Satan, the Lord rebukes you. We can say that. Or we can say, I rebuke you, Satan, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can say those two things to him, and he will respect it. Because the devil is afraid of the power of Jesus and the name of Jesus, and the blood of Jesus. But saying these two things requires some spiritual muscle. And that spiritual muscle is only developed through prevailing prayer. Now let's go to the first part of the verse where Jesus said this, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Now Bible scholars and teachers have tended to see this particular sentence in three ways. Some think that Jesus was being descriptive or that he was simply describing what he was already seeing as the 72 disciples were on mission, as they were casting out demons and healing the sick and so on. That Jesus was saying, I am seeing Satan fall. So he's describing He's saying, when you were out casting out demons and healing people in my name, I was beholding Satan fall from heaven like lightning. That's the first view. 
Some people think that Jesus was speaking prophetically, meaning that he was referring to the judgment that Satan himself would experience, the judgment that the book of Revelation tells us about. And so in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, we find these words, and the devil who had deceived them, who had deceived um, some of the persons here on earth, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. So some people think that Jesus was speaking prophetically. He was looking ahead to this time. But there are others, finally, who think that this refers to a combination of the two, that Jesus was both being descriptive of what was happening as well as he was being prophetic of what would happen. Now, whichever it is, I believe that Jesus was saying that the devil's time is limited. The devil's time and influence is limited. But that does not mean that he's not working over time right now. We know that he is. He is working over time. But you and I, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we have been given authority and power to curb what the devil is doing. And we must be about that. We must be about that. I believe that we curb satanic activity when we pray against it. Whenever we give to the work of missions, whenever we teach or preach in Jesus' name, whenever we help to deliver a soul from sin, we are curbing Satan's activity. Here's the third thing I want to say to us this morning. That who we are and whose we are trumps anything that we do for Jesus, trumps our ministry. Jesus says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, did you catch the word nevertheless? It is important. Jesus was not discounting the significance of having demons subject to you. I mean, that is a, that is a, a very important thing. That's a significant thing. He's not discounting that at all. He was saying, your worth is not determined by the power of your ministry. Maybe I need to say that to myself. Theo, don't derive your identity or your sense of importance from what you do. That's what Jesus is saying. Your worth is not determined by the power of your ministry. It is determined by the power of your belonging. In other words, it's not what you do for Jesus that is significant. It is who you are. It is who Jesus says you are. Your value is not determined by what you do, but, but by who you are and but by whose you are. You belong to me, Jesus says. You are mine. Your name is written in heaven. Who you are in Christ is more important than who you used to be. I'm so glad about that because I'm not terribly proud of who I used to be. Who I am now is important. Where you're going in life is more important than where you have been in this life. Your identity as a child of God is more important than what you do for God. The trophy that you will one day receive from God's hands 
is more significant than any trophy that you can receive in this life. You are a child of God. You have been bought with a price, the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. You have been washed. You have been forgiven. You have been restored. You have been healed. You have been blessed. Rejoice in these things, Jesus says. Don't rejoice in what you do and what you see God doing through you. That is important, yes, but rejoice in these things. And you know what? The more that we rejoice in these things, the less the devil can mess with our minds because he does that. And he messes with our hearts as well. Now, we have a very interesting way of introducing ourselves to strangers, don't we? We usually begin by telling them our name, and then we go on to tell them something significant about ourselves, something that we want them to remember us by. And so, I hate to pick on Gary, but Gary can handle this. But, you know, Gary might say something like this, Hey, I'm Gary. And my wife, Kathy, and I, and our eight children, we have attended here for the last decade. Am I right? Yes. That's what Gary would probably uh, say. Miss Alice would say, I am Miss Alice. And I'm not doing too bad for an 80-year-old woman. That's what you ask Alice anytime how she's doing. And she says, not too bad for an 80-year-old woman. All right? Maybe Janet would say, I'm Janet, and I am a... Greenfield Central School Teacher. Is that kind of how you introduce yourself? That is typically what we do. We say, we say our name, and then we say something significant that we want people to remember us by. But Jesus wouldn't introduce any of these three persons that way. He would introduce them as being his children. Because you see, God values who we are more importantly than what we do. Which brings us to the bottom line of our message this morning. That the gates of hell will never be able to prevail against God's church. I don't care how small the church is. I don't care how large it is. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. And so there are three points I want to have you take away with you this morning as we bring our message to a close. I want to challenge some of you here this morning, and maybe some viewing online, to get on the winning side. The winning side. And so to those of you who have not yet decided to give your life exclusively and completely to Jesus Christ, I want to say to you respectfully, respectfully, you are really on the losing side. There is no way that you can win. You're on the losing side. Why do I say that? How can I be so bold to say that? Because God's word has already told me how this story is going to end. Those of us who read God's word and who are uh, believers in Jesus Christ, we know how life is going to end. We know how this story is going to end because Jesus has told us. And the only way that you can win is by being on the winning side, the winning team. And the only way that you can be on the winning team is by allowing Jesus Christ, who is the champion of all champions, the leader of all leaders, the Lord of all lords, the King of all kings, by allowing him to be born in your heart and in your life. Amen indeed.
And so I want to challenge you this morning, very boldly and very deliberately, to give your heart and life to Jesus. There's no shame in doing that. That is not a death trap for you either. That is life. Life to the full. I want to ask you to bow your heads right here, right now. I want to ask you this morning, if there's any person here today who is not on the winning side, you have not given your heart to Jesus, but you want to do so today. Today. May I see your hand? Amen. I see that hand. You can take it down. Is there any other person who wants to do that today? Let us pray together. God, I thank you for Nathan this morning. God, you brought him here specifically for your own purpose. Maybe to hear this word. Maybe to confirm is in his own heart that you love him more than anything else in this life. God, I ask this morning that you would cause something inexplicable to happen in Nathan's heart and life that points back to today when he raised his hand. I ask, oh God, that you would do in his heart and in his life what only the power of Jesus can do. Give him the desires of his heart today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to say secondly this morning as we wrap up, I want to challenge you to use the authority that you have been given. Use the authority that you have been given. Clearly in God's word, we read this morning that Jesus has given us authority. What we need to do now is to learn how to operate in that authority. Whenever the devil throws things against us or at us, and he will, we need to learn how to operate in that authority. And the way that we learn to operate in that authority is by using the power that is in the name of Jesus, in the blood of Jesus, and in the words of Jesus. And the only way that we learn how to do that is through discipleship. You don't just automatically learn that. You learn that as you subject yourself to periodic and a systematic way of being discipled in God's word. You learn how to do that through prayer. It was William Cowper who once said this. And my mother, I don't know, she always used this line. The devil trembles when the weakest saint is on their knees. That is how we operate in authority. Nothing gives you confidence to operate in that authority like prayer. Here's the third and final thing I want to say to us this morning as we close. Rejoice that you are a citizen of heaven. Now, so much of the Christian life makes sense to me because of this reality, because of the fact that beyond this life, after all of the disappointments, the challenges, the setbacks, the sicknesses, the griefs, and all that you go through life, 
it makes sense to me that I'm going to spend eternity with Jesus Christ in heaven. I'm told that this life is only the dressing room to eternity. And, and we make so much of this life. And, and, and maybe we should, because we live here, at least temporarily. But it's only the dressing room for eternity. And so much of our focus needs to be on the fact that beyond this life, we have a hope as Christians of living beyond this life. We derive comfort from the fact that we are children of God and that one of these days we will surmount all of these things in life that have been so painful. This is what the Apostle Paul reminds us of in Ephesians chapter, I'm sorry, in Philippians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21. Paul writes this, and he's writing to believers, Christians. He says, but our citizenship is in the United States of America. That's what Paul wrote, no? No, he does not. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so, yes, we are proud citizens of America, but we are even prouder citizens of heaven. So let us rejoice in the knowledge that heaven will be our final home. Let us pray together. God, we are so thankful for the power of your word, your word, your word. Your word is true, Lord. Your word is life. Your word is so liberating. Your word has authority in it. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that victory belongs to you. And victory belongs to those who serve you. God, we again rejoice, Lord God, in Nathan's decision today to raise his hand for you. God, we pray in the name of Jesus that as a result of this, that Nathan would be sealed to you forever. The enemy would no longer have any impact on him whatsoever. That he would walk in freedom in the victory that you give him. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.